0: Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to hundred dollars. Just visit PrizePicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at PrizePicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to a hundred dollars. Prize Picks daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: You're listening to Uncovered with Barat Sundaroysen and Jared Kimball. Welcome to another episode of Uncovered. I'm Jared Kimber. Uh, Unfortunately, Parrots in the Racing has found a new excuse. In fact, it's the same excuse as last week. He changed houses, moved into a new place, and his Wi-Fi is not working at the moment. Uh, He's still working. So if you're a a Wi-Fi technician uh, anywhere near the Adelaide Hills, please get in touch with Burra um, if you want him to be on this or any other podcasts uh, in the future. Um, But uh, uh, we're finally in the same time zone because I'm in Australia um trying to think of what's the best australian story i can tell you about coming out oh, well i've got two so i went to a supermarket today to pick up some stuff and as i was going through i found a deodorant and the deodorant was uh in the well, say flavor what do you say the, the aroma of solo solo was a famous old lemon drink that used to get um sold a lot in australia and probably doesn't get sold as much these days as it used to but it was a very famous old drink And now you can buy it as a deodorant. So that's something. Um, and the other thing that I saw was just, I'd forgotten and I'm a frequent swearer, I was even considered probably a high octane swearer in Australia, uh, when I lived there, but it is incredible to go from another country or a couple of countries actually, and then fly into, um, Australia and just be overwhelmed by the casual swearing um, again so just great to be back home I did stop for Dis- in Disney uh, for a day on the way through my favorite thing about Los Angeles on the way to Disney was seeing a store that said Donut King and Water there's a store for all of us I think but let's um the the, the game I saw the most of I seen a little bit of the IPL games but not focused on them as much but the game I saw a lot of was the Sri Lanka New Zealand game t20 game um and it really it's an interesting game isn't it because it's a proper what would you say um 70 percent game you know best players from either team are obviously you know busy with ipl duties but it does give you a really good idea at sort of what the depth is like it also allows the teams to be a little bit more creative so i could see why what's the best way of putting it i can see why um playing some internationals during the ipl window actually might give you a bit of a benefit because you're still going up against generally, generally, you know, international quality players. I didn't think there was anyone in either of those two sides. I was like, shouldn't be out there. Um, but, you know, a player like Mark Chapman gets a more of a chance than he probably would in other games. But the really interesting thing I thought was if you can keep playing those sorts of games, you have the ability to develop your players uh, in internationals that people aren't following as much. Um, and, uh, but they, you know, it's still at that level of cricket, it's a really, really interesting development tool. And I'm positive that that's not why these teams are playing. It's probably just on the scheduling kicks that they can get over. But I do think going ahead is really interesting. But the other thing I thought about, well, actually I had two other really interesting thoughts about that particular game. One was that T20 cricket on a small ground. you know, I don't know what the dimensions are in England, but you know, it feels like eight, eight inches wide, right? ish so hitting a stick to tie the game the last ball from a flick off his pass you know good on him but it's a different world when someone like Ishody can play a shot like that but, but i did think from a from a perspective of we, we've we already seen some things have substitutions we've got obviously the t10 with the 100 there's all these little things around there but having a much smaller playing system is a really interesting secondary sort of thing and and I remember going to a lot of cricket in Nottingham when Trent Bridge brought the ropes in so far. They were, I think sometimes. And it was a different kind of T20 game. And it's not to say that it's better or worse, but again, it's another, um, it's almost like a separate product because it is a really, a different kind of T20 game. It's much more about the boundaries, less about other tactical, um, you know, issues that you might use or anything else. But I thought it was a very, you know, fun game of cricket. I think that's the only one of that series I've seen so far. You know, obviously watched a little bit of IPL and stuff, even when I was on the plane. Um, at times, I got to see some of that. Um, uh, so, but the, oh, this is the other thing I wanted to mention about the New Zealand Sri Lanka game. I think it was just that T Twenty I was talking about, the one that went down to the super over that Sri Lanka won, where they New Zealand. I think it's Spark, isn't it, in New Zealand? They had married commentators it's really interesting um i've had these conversations before with people about this in fact i've had very very angry um people say to me that you know my pushing for um non-english cover of cricket is in itself racist because you know i think that people from certain countries could speak english but it's not just about that it's about inclusion and i remember when i think it was the first one i remember ever doing this was the japan cricket these up tweets in two different languages uh, quite regularly, you know, for English speakers in Japan who like cricket, and for Japanese speakers in Japan who might like cricket as well. And it just seemed like a fairly natural thing to do. And we we've seen, I, I think, I was talking to someone from Star recently, and they said that seventy percent of the cricket coverage uh, in in the IPL was followed by people um, watching the Hindi broadcast. You know, the IPL, I think, has been pretty good at having multiple languages for a little while now. There's, there's, I think there's always a big problem with language in cricket. And I'm not sure it's one that's easily overcome, but I'll tell you a little story about when I was covering Afghanistan at the World Cup. I think this was in 2019. And I went to contact a player. I can't remember who it was now, but it was one of their younger players. And I wanted to chat to him. And I, and I, and I asked something along the lines of, um, you know, who, who I could talk to because I knew he didn't speak English. And there was no one in the team available, you know, from the the, the off-field side of things to actually help uh, with that. And so in the end, he did the interview in Urdu, but he did it away because the Afghanistan management had told him he wasn't allowed to speak Urdu in any interviews. Um, and so I had, I th- think there was a Pakistani in the room who helped me out with the, uh, with the translation. It was only a short, you know, five, ten-minute interview. But the interesting thing was that it was a big deal for the Afghanistani Crickle to not allow him to speak Urdu, but they didn't also make anyone uh, available to speak to him, um, to speak on his behalf for any other languages. So he had no translators there. I've seen uh, um, um cool yeah, it was Um years ago, um, misspoke at a press conference where I don't think there was any Pakistani press there i don't remember any but there's a lot of australian press at this particular press conference and he accidentally got his wording wrong and he meant to say that ricky ponting was a really good player and accidentally made it sound like ricky ponting was a really poor player again there was no one there um i saw an indian tour where one of the media had to go up and do translation for the player um i, I can't remember i want to say it was almost Shadow, but i can't remember who the player if it was him or someone else but again and again these sorts of things come up. I've talked about pronunciations in cricket as well. You've got 4,000 professional players from all different kinds of backgrounds. You know, within countries like England uh, and Australia, you get strange uh, pronunciations. You know, Manas Labashane is a f- perfect example. That's an Australian pronunciation of Labashain. Labaskakne, got that one wrong. The South African pronunciation, you know, Moses Enriquez, Moses Enriquez, you know. Uh, you've even got things like Arashwin, Revichamwin Ashwin and... You know, Sano still calls him Ravi Ashwin, despite the fact that he's asked not to be called that. There's a real problems with languages and names in cricket. And so I know it's a small thing, and I'm not sure it changed cricket massively in New Zealand, but have the option of having in, uh, being covered in, you know, a local language, a different language, um, something that probably appeals to a slightly different market than the normal cricket market in New Zealand, I think it's a really, really good thing, even if it doesn't change, you know, cricket forever. All these things are a good step towards making our game more inclusive and considering our game has been as uninclusive as possible many times. Uh, we, you know, very interesting things going on with Scottish cricket at the moment uh, with the new guy um, stepping down there. Um, obviously, the Yorkshire uh, racism committee has just come out and some players were proven to be racist, but others that were unproven and everything else. Like, There's a lot of issues within cricket around the world when it comes to these sorts of things. So it was sort of nice to see the other side of that, of Cricket New Zealand really trying to come together um, and probably also find a newer audience that, as a traditional cricket audience. Uh, on to the IPL, it, <laughs> Mumbai Indians. I thought it was funny that they use their super sub on a left-arm seam bowler, being that Mumbai Indians are, I, I don't know, is there a cricket team a so left-arm pace than Mumbai Indians? Perhaps Pakistan? Uh, <laughs> you know, it just seems that Mumbai, That's their, they've decided to have as many options as they can when it comes to left-arm seam. Jason Berendorf was brought in as the super sub. It made sense. He bowled, you know, first over. So brand new ball, everything you want him to do. And of course he goes for 37 and three overs as Virat Kohli and Faf. I took him everywhere. I'm trying to think. I reckon Virat's got got an average record against left arm pace, but I think Faf might be one of those guys who really But even so, Berendorf, you know, he probably just hasn't played enough cricket over the years. When he has played and he gets on a bit of a run, he, becomes unplayable for little bits and pieces. But I, I think it does sometimes it does take him a little bit longer to amp up and, you know, come back from all those injuries. But I thought it was very interesting and then went with that. Now super sub was Gotham who came in to face one ball at the end of the innings. That's kind of a perfect way of of doing it. Um I really thought that was quite interesting. Bring in the guy to slog one or two with he could hold a bit. Um uh, what, what I think what we're seeing with this pattern at the moment is that it is probably going away from traditional around us. So I think if we're going to do this, it would make more sense if, you know, with my system, maybe my system of 15 players is too many, but 13 players and allow, you know, tagging in, tagging out, all those sorts of things, uh, I think makes a lot more sense going forward. But e- even as it is, um, I find it uh, it certainly... I, I think it is a good way of T20 cricket, again, differentiating itself from the other forms of the game. Um, and on the all-rounders point that I made, I saw Cameron Green went for 30 runs and two overs. I've said this before. it's a, fat, it's a His bowling is f- so fascinating to see where it goes and what direction it ends up in because there's nothing that I've seen in his bowling so far that makes me think he's an IPL bowler. I'm not even sure he's a white ball bowler at the moment. But I will say this, when he came into test cricket, despite the fact he had very good figures, you watched him early on and you're like, I'm not sure he really understands bowling yet. And he could be the opposite, uh, you know, of the sort of player that we talk about. Well, he might be someone a little bit more similar to someone like Imran Khan, who I suppose had the natural attributes of a fast bowler, but it took him a very long time to work out how to do it. But I'm getting I, I want to see how often Cameron Green gets used and how that goes. But yeah, 30 runs for two overs in his first one. I don't have any other IPL thoughts, if we're being honest. I, you know, dipped in and out of it a little bit, obviously was flying, uh, you know, watched some of it on small screens and everything else. Um, but, uh, you know, it's back. And I'm sure by next week and the week after, I'll have a million more thoughts for you. Um, we, if you haven't seen it, we've got some uh, We've got some really interesting T20 um, stuff coming up and we've already put it up. The, the video on scoops, uh, I thought, was I thought I thought it was really interesting going through the numbers and seeing the history of scoops. And for those of you who don't know, you know how batting has changed over the years and how the scoops have played a large pl- part in that uh, was quite interesting. And how there still aren't many players who actually play it that much, other than Tobias Thisay, the former f- we say former Dutch player hasn't played for them in a while, I don't think. Um, and Gunnar who uses a lot, it's really a shot. That that is used so minimally but obviously gets massive impact so we've done a video on that uh and we had the harmanpreet one of course as well that came out just before I'm, which was more wpl focused although it was really more about her innings against australia in the 2017 world cup and i'm working on a couple of videos at the moment one on samuel badry and leg spinners opening or or bowling in the power play i suppose another one's on Faf. so you know Huge shout out to Faf for making some runs there. Always great. Uh, you know, It's funny when you work working in cricket media for so long, I think the thought is that everyone's biased towards a team and all this sort of stuff, whereas anyone who's ever worked in cricket will, or in any sport uh, will say that you're basically, if you're writing or creating media, um, you're cheering on the narrative whether it be your narrative or the narrative that will help you get more hits or anything else. Um, So I don't think I've ever thought to myself, oh, it's great that Faf has made runs in an IPL game. Um, uh, But when he did in this one, I was like, oh, thanks mate. Um, All right. We'll have a short break. And then after this break, uh, we've got plenty more. Oh, I want to talk about the women's uh, uh, women in Australia specifically and getting paid. Uh, So you're listening to uncovered with Jared Kimber and, and not the other guy.
0: Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends nine nineteen. No refund. Subscription auto-renews.
1: Welcome back to Uncovered. Um, there's some questions in in the um, in the chat already, so I've starred some of those. I'll get to them at the end. Uh, I, sh- I should say, if you definitely want your question answered, obviously super chat is the best o- option. Um, uh, if you're just chipping in late and you're like Barrett's not here again, yeah, he's got no Wi-Fi. That's what he says. We'll see what the next excuse is, but that's that's where he's he's sticking at the moment. Um, Yeah, so the Australian women's cricket have changed, or Cricket Australia, I should say, uh, have changed their pay structure for Australian women's cricket. Let me put this all my notes up actually near the computer because I'm looking over. I'm in an Airbnb and it's all a bit weird. Um, But, yeah, it's a really, really interesting uh, development that the top woman now, I think, can earn, I think it's about $800,000 Australian to I don't know what the exchange rate with the US is, but that's probably more than half a million um, US, I would have thought, or at least around that number um, if you're not from Australia. But that's a lot of money, obviously, for a woman. That's across, I think, the women's big bash and the international contracts. You know, we know that Australia's been far ahead of the game with this. Um, There's absolutely no doubt that India could certainly match this and then better it if they wanted to or had the desire to do so. England would certainly be able to match it but their contract structures are a lot different because so much there's so many first class cricketers or professional cricketers across the men's and women's game now in England that the whole pay structure thing works a lot differently in England than it does in Australia so it's always I think it's always easier for Australia to pay their top players more than it probably is in England even though ECB makes more money um none of the other boards I, I mean how long before we would ever see New Zealand Sri Lanka, west indies south africa pakistan pay their top women half a million us dollars i mean it's it's a way way and you know that comes back to the whole space race thing because i think we've seen space races at times in cricket obviously the west indies was i don't want to say a fluke because it doesn't it seems like that's the wrong way of putting it but it was it wasn't the west indies cricket board at that time that uh cricket west indies now um that made the West Indies great, but there was a confluence of a lot of different factors that came together that did that. And then obviously you would say that Australia was the next, uh, one where they basically just got professional so much quicker than anyone else. So we've, we've seen that with the, in the men's game, but the women's game from the moment, the Australian women went professional. There's just been a huge difference, hasn't there, between the standard of them and everyone else. Obviously, the England women had a little bit of a bump even when they did it. Uh, WPL will see what sort of impact that has on Indian women's cricket. But it does feel at the moment that women's cricket is probably going to be dominated by the three major teams over the next three to um, 15 years, just because that they would be the places where the most professionals will ha- will happen. But that doesn't mean there won't be, uh, again, I don't want to call them fluke, but not a, what's the best way of putting it? Non-board-related success put it that way uh where you can you can but you can suddenly have a um where you can suddenly have a situation where the uh what's the best way to put it yeah where you can suddenly have a situation where i don't know like what happened with south africa when the south african women got good you know you don't hear many people crediting cricket south africa with that what you really are saying at that point is they've, they got really good because they factored into a lot of um overseas tournaments and then a group of what six to eight of them all upskilled at the same time perhaps that will happen again in the future but it just looks like you know the way that cricket australia are doing things and the way the other two major boards will do things it's going to be really tough for everyone the other thing i wanted to talk about actually with the women's wages is that the australian men back on their last um mou uh really fought for the women in fact got to the point that cricket australia haven't got as much fight for this as they should have but they tried to wedge the women and the men against each other a little bit in those negotiations and when I started covering uh, the cricket, I would say that the Australian men didn't treat the Australian women like they were even cricketers, let alone cricketers who they would ever fight for. And I, and I think the Mitchell Stark, Alyssa Healy thing really did change things a lot in that relationship. So going forward, it, you know, it's interesting again that you know the Players Association are happy, for, you know, and obviously gives gives them more members as well, but that they're fighting for the women and the men. Um, It'd be interesting to talk to some of the men off the record and see how they feel about this. But I would have thought this this just feels right and where the game should be going. And we obviously saw other things with New Zealand women's cricket not that long ago that we might have talked about on another Uncovered. So it does feel like a really good step in the right direction. The other thing that changed in the pay structure of, or, or appears to be changing in the pay structure of uh, uh, Australian cricket is that the Big Bash is getting, I think it's an extra third I think it was 2 million Australian dollar salary cap and it's going up to a 3 million. That's a big jump. When I was working with the big bash teams, they just knew they couldn't outbid anyone. And at that point they were getting absolutely hammered by Bangladesh because Bangladesh had owners. And of course those owners were willing to pay for AB to to cover a handful of games. And, you know, Cricket Australia would pay for some of those players, but they could only get one or two and they couldn't get the depth. And, you know, it, it didn't, it wasn't quite the same. Really interesting that 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 salary cap, you know, it has to go up because of the UAE league and the South African league. It probably still isn't high enough, but it's a really, really interesting thing that they've done that now. Had they done it a couple of years earlier, um, they might have got themselves in a position where they were the major destination for overseas players at that time of the year. I think I think now it's maybe too little, too late. But um, you know, it'd be very good for a lot of domestic players as well. Um, so and and, and also having spent some time in Australia the last couple of days, you do realize how many of the big bash players are quite well known in Australia now. You know, it's free to wear prime time all the way through summer. Um, it's a, you know, from that point of view, it's a very good competition to get players involved uh, and watch, uh, uh, sorry, get players known, I should say, who normally you wouldn't know, you know, back back in my day when I was a kid, we knew about Richard Chiqui and um, who else? Joe Skidiri um, and those that sort of level of player. But you had to be a hardcore cricket fan. And I don't think you do now. So I do think that with that league being so successful, the players deserve to also get paid that little bit more money. Some you know, some of the money going back wasn't particularly good. So really interesting from a financial point of view. I didn't get to go through everything. I, I think I read a couple of articles. Nash has got one up on CrickInfo. Um, and there's a couple others out there. But it's a really interesting uh, development for Australian cricket. All right, let's take another break. And then after the break, he says he can't even find the breaks. Is an idiot area, uh, and then after the break, uh, we will take a little bit of look at South Africa versus Netherlands, which I thought was uh, quite interesting. All right, uh South Africa versus Netherlands. So this is obviously a massively. Important. I I, I'm, I was trying to think about this the other day. Outside of the World Cup qualifiers, when West Indies were going up against teams like Scotland and you know stuck their way through to 2019, this. South Africa-Netherlands is a massively important event that isn't really getting much coverage. And because it's South Africa-Netherlands, I understand the general point of it. But you do have a situation where, of course, South Africa is desperate to qualify for this World Cup. Uh, So in the the game the other day, they made 370 versus the Netherlands. Uh, Their batting is steady as a rock in one-day cricket, despite the fact that they only go in with six players. I made a video about it. It's not that long ago, maybe a couple of months ago. It's a really, really interesting one. The way so many of their batters uh, made runs, but of course, so many of their batters are not, uh, you know, around at the moment because they're off um, in other places. Uh, and uh, they had Markram, didn't they, um, uh, available for them? Actually, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think who played for them in that game. How many of them actually are at the IPL already? But either way, they, you know, uh, Markram obviously being available for them uh, was a huge boom. I think he made uh, lots of runs, but More interesting than that, also bowled and took some wickets as well. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. But the other thing is that, you know, they're trying to make a World Cup. And we saw what happened when they were trying to qualify for the next round against the Dutch in the World Cup. It's it's just so much more interesting how the bilaterals don't seem to affect them. You know, they made, what was it, 370 and they bowled them out for 224. The psychology of that whole South African thing. And I know we've all talked to, about it to death and the choking and the problems and the issues and all the things that have happened to them. But this is just as important, right? And when they played the Dutch in the cold, hard light, cold, hard light, cold, hard day, the glaring lights of the World Cup, they didn't look anything like this. And then suddenly they played them in one day. And I do think the Dutch team is a much better T20 team than it is a one day team. But even so, It's interesting how much they've won. They're going to have to continue that, of course. But um, I I find that just very South Africa, that suddenly they're in bilaterals again. And even when the bilaterals matter, they're absolutely cruising through them. Um, That series against England, I'm trying to think how full... I think that was a fairly good team England put out too. That series against England is a really, really interesting one uh, to show how good they are. And of course, they will all disappoint us again uh, when it comes to the World Cup if they do qualify, which it now looks like they will. But isn't it fun that they have to qualify? Imagine that, uh, a you know. In the old days, all you needed to do was uh, get test status. And for, here's a fun story. I've probably told it before. Here's a fun story. South Africa basically got test status because a lot of rich English people wanted to visit there. And so they were given test status despite the fact that they didn't play a lot of cricket. They weren't particularly good at cricket. They couldn't really afford to get good at cricket at that point. They played against fourth and fifth string um, England teams, you know, players like Charles, the great, um, um, child, uh, was it Charles Aubrey? No, I got his name wrong. Uh, the old the old captain that went on to be the Hollywood actor anyway, playing his only test match, um, against South Africa. You know, a lot of guys who'd never played first class cricket and only played first class cricket in test matches against South Africa. That's the sort of teams that they used to send over there, but people were desperate to go and have a holiday and down in Cape town. And so off, off an England team went off. And because of that, weird quirk and the fact that we decided years later that some of those matches were test matches despite the fact they weren't called test matches at that time Also, well, sorry they were everything was called a test match but they weren't really considered major matches at that time and then to think that other than you know an apartheid ban they basically were just allowed to go to every world cup because in 1890 someone said i'd like to have a holiday in south africa it's a very very interesting uh, sport that we have that those sorts of quirks exist Anyway, if anyone has any Super Chats, feel free uh, to pop them up. But there are some non-Super Chats. Not that they're not super, um, just that they're not, they don't come up with Super Chats. Uh, so we've got a few here. Blah uh, Blah says, how does Crickinfo make enough money to pay the journalist, scorers, and ex-cricketer analysts? Is it really just the ads on their website? Well, it's owned by Disney. They have 40 million unique users a month. I think that's right. Um, it might be more uh, those are the numbers i last remember hearing from them i think any website with 40 million unique users is certainly going to get uh, a good amount of money off their advertising the other thing that CrickInfo info gets is the, the average amount of time and this is even compared to a website like Crickbuzz which is you know a different version of the same thing CrickInfo info gets an incredibly large amount of time per per, per user so Again, I don't know what the actual numbers are these days, but I do remember when I was there that the average time spent on the Guardian's website was like three seconds or seven seconds, something ridiculous. Whereas the average time on Quick Info was over a minute. And that means that, you know, that's because of the scorecards, right? You know, people on the live ball by ball summaries and all those sorts of things. But it does, for an advertiser, that's absolutely huge, right? So there's a lot of money to be made um, from advertising, but it's also a strategic play by ESPN. I'll be honest when I worked there, I always thought they could make a lot more money from advertising. I I didn't think that the ESPN advertising understood cricket. I didn't think they understood the market that they were trying to deal with. They never had like a specialist in Bangladesh trying to get advertising for them, despite the fact that that was a very, you know, that it's a hugely popular website in Bangladesh. Um, they let a lot of own goals go, but a lot of the reasons that they didn't do all that sort of stuff is because it was seen as more of a strategic play for ESPN and cricket than anything else. Um, but, yeah, no, it does make money. Um, any Anything with 40 million unique views, users, um, it's going to make money. The SS, or bloody bugger on Patreon, says, uh, what can you tell me about Prasanna J. Awardner? Oh, yeah, I saw this. I saw you put that message up, but sorry I hadn't had a chance to have a look at it. Uh, I was not following Tess Creek when he was playing. have heard he was one of the best pure wicket keepers in history. Yeah, I think what Prasanna was was a very interesting, I'm trying to think of the best way of putting it, but he was a very natural wicket-keeping athlete. So, no, nothing like someone like Adam Gilchrist or Quentin de um, or those sorts of people. But I think Persana had that incredible sideways um, uh, movement. So, you see that what, what I'm trying to think of some other sports. I suppose tennis players have it, um, NBA defenders have it. Um, you know, there's a few sports where you have that. And, you know, his ability, he was very powerful at moving from side to side, which when you're up at the stumps to a wiki keeper, is a, up at the stumps as a wiki keeper. Uh, to spin as much as he was, he was beautiful at that. And having his foot, you know, a lot of modern wicket keepers wicked keep with their hands. This is going to sound stupid if you've ever played cricket. But you should actually wicket keep with your feet because if you can get over to them, you're taking everything under your eyes rather than at the side of your eyes, and that's when the majority of the mistakes happen. And he was absolutely brilliant at that. Had very soft hands. As a batter, look at I me, mean, you know. You put his batting stats into a wicketkeeper ten or fifteen years earlier, and I don't think there was anything wrong with it. I would say I saw him make a hundred, but I feel like I saw him play really important innings along the line. He he was at probably um, below average number seven, but would have been you know an above average number eight with the bat. But yeah, beautiful wicketkeeper, sort of a supernatural feel for where the ball was going. I always felt he's the. He, yeah, I, I would say that after Jack Russell, we got James Foster in there as well. I would say that probably those those are the those were the guys that were just the best natural wicket keepers that made the international level. If you've ever watched first class cricket, you these guys do occasionally happen, although it's gone now. But uh, we certainly had a few of them before uh, in in professional level. But at the international level, I think Prasanna was. The best modern wicket keeper um, by a distance, but also he was picked as a wicket keeper. And, you know, I'm not, I don't want to knock some of the other players um, out there, but they're not picked as wicketkeepers, right? So you wouldn't expect them to be as good as someone who was, was brought up. And, and the one other thing I would say about Sri Lanka is that the ball spins there further than anywhere else. It's got the highest spin degree, um, I think, uh, on, on, um, uh, the the Hawkeye tracking and the Crickviz uh, metrics and everywhere else. And so it is a harder place to go there with a non-specialist wiki keeper in a way that, let's say the UAE, which always had spin, you may not quite need that same kind of specialist in that way. So um, he was an absolutely beautiful uh, wiki keeper. always happy to talk about him. Um, probably I wonder if one day we'll look back on him being one of the last true specialists of a major team, who seems to be specialist from some of the smaller teams. But I do wonder if he'll be the last specialist from a major team that we will see. That's not to say we won't ever see good wikikeeping again. Alan Knott, Les Ames, you know, MS Stoney. There's certainly guys who could wicket keep and bat before him. But whether we'll ever see a specialist wikikeeper keeper whose wiki-keeping is that special at the international level, consistently like we did with Persana, I don't know. Yuva Shump says, uh, why can't the Sri Lankan team struggle more? Or why can't the Sri Lankan team struggle more in ODIs against a second string New Zealand side? Is it because in T20s you can get away with bits and pieces players? I think he's saying, why, does they, why are they struggling more in ODI cricket than T20 cricket? I didn't see the ODIs, to be honest. So I, I think that. I remember having a look at this a couple of, year, uh, couple of years ago as they were coming through. It felt to me that Sri Lanka was about to put together a very good T20 team. In fact, when Mickey Arthur got the job, I think I sent him a message saying, "There's a lot about this T20 team I like, and it hasn't, you know, been developed the way that it should have." I don't feel the same way with their one-day side, so I'm not sure it's about the bits and pieces or anything else. I just think that you know there is. We see this. Over and over again, Ireland was a really good example of this, a very good one-day side that didn't quite have the T20 pieces. And they are, I don't know if I say divergent, um, but they are diverging as different talent. I'm sure I've mentioned this recently, but, you know, Josh Butler's comments were really interesting about one-day cricket where he hadn't played much and came back to play against South Africa, and he was sort of saying that he needed to relearn it. It was Nicholas Perron who really took me through it step by step of how different it is than T20 cricket when you're out in the middle. And I'm, you know, I'm sure it's the same for the bowlers as well. So, just having white ball talent, you know, you need specific talent for each format. But, but yeah, I mean, I think I missed the one day. So I, I've only got the T20, and they look pretty good in the T20. They should have won that game in regulation time. Um, and then uh, obviously there was a bit of a shocker with the uh, New Zealand had a bit of a shocker with the super over, and 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 Sri Lanka won there. Han says, "Do you think the impact player may be a more fun uh, if it was only for a limited number no- number of overs rather than just an extra player? I think it would be more fun if it was unlimited. Um, from that perspective, and that every and then you could pick from fifteen players and just change them. Um, so you could always have spare spinners or spare quicks in the side. Um, you could you know you go out there and you've you know uh and you you suddenly you realize that." You, I'm trying to even think. You've got you've got the the squad the the team set up slightly wrong uh, with an eleven, but with fifteen, you have the ability to sort of never have to worry about that. You know, have those other players around. We don't have to see as many overs bowled by fifth and sixth bowlers because you know you will have enough frontliners in your team. Um, teams can go harder knowing that they have ten legitimate batters or at least eight legitimate batters and maybe a couple of hitters um, uh, down the order. I, I just think it would be a much better spectacle. We'd see the best against the best more often. Um, my guess is, other than cricket being you know, conservative by nature, my guess is the other reason is that you'd have to have more players available to you in your squad, and that might uh, knock people back. But I would love to see it that way. Yuvishant says, uh, what's the likely pitch conditions in Zimbabwe for the World Cup qualifiers and can Sri Lanka qualify? generally the ball spins a lot in Zimbabwe. Uh, slower wickets, I'm trying to think what you would say. They're not really like Sri Lankan wickets. Maybe more, I want to say UAE, but that's probably unfair to them because there's a little bit more PEP in them. But they're I, I don't they're like a slow South African wicket combined with like UAE type conditions at times. That's you see a lot of those sort of part-timery finger spinners come through in, um, Dimbabwe. So from that perspective, there's no problem for Sri Lanka, um, in those conditions. I think, you know, n- none of it's ideal. They probably wouldn't want to be trying to qualify in the first place, but I don't think there's anything in those, re- in the conditions that is going to cause them, uh, you know, it's, they're not, the tournament's not being played in Ireland. Um, where else would be tricky, um, You know, Ireland or Scotland or somewhere like that, Um, or the or Netherlands. uh, You know, to pick some of the European places where you're not quite sure what the wickets are going to be like at times. Um, If that's the case, uh, it would be very, very different. But I think for Sri Lanka, Zimbabwe is a fairly good match for them. Summit says it was the 2011 World Cup anniversary yesterday. Do you think the Sri Lankan white ball team from 2007 to 14 was one of the best team in limited overs ever? multiple finals in different conditions, still not talked about enough. Yeah, I did something submit recently on the Sri Lankan T20 and one day side, probably pretty much that era that you were talking about because, you know, obviously, they were really bad after that, right? And so I was looking that up and the more you look through the names and the place that they had, you do think to yourself, this was so much better as a team than we even gave it credit for at the time. And I think it's really at that, Early point, sort of maybe before cricket Twitter takes over and everything else. Sri Lankan media is of course, it's not that they don't have cricket journalists, but a lot of their cricket media isn't outside. I would say that Crick Info didn't have a Sri Lankan, a full-time Sri Lankan consult uh writer back then. I don't know when Fernando started actually. So maybe he was just starting off. Um and he's probably more of a test guy anyway, I would say. Um, so that probably played a part. Crick buzz wasn't really an issue back in those days. So, yeah, I do think it was missed. And, well, you know, I, I think now, you know, what are we, nine years on? Cricket is just covered a lot better from a global – I mean, the reason I got a job was because I cover global cricket. And you got to remember, I was getting hired in that point. Um, but I agree with you. I think looking back, it's a really, a really, really interesting period – of which you, you know, you look at the IPL players as well that they created and the T20 players around the world, you know, Dilshan, you had Murali, you had Malinga, Jimin DeBas was still playing, you know, Kumar and Mahela. um, I'm trying to think who else, uh, you know, they just, there was a lot of really interesting Sri Lankan talent around at that point, um, you know, playing for them and they were successful in, in both the formats. So they won the 2014 world cup they lost the 2012 world cup in the final i lost the 2009 world cup in the final trying to think what else they did so it was a it was a very very good period and i do think that if another team had done that we would have talked about it a lot more but yeah I, I, i was looking the numbers up recently and they were just an exceptional exceptional side Jake says do you think Gupta uh, should or will make this year's world cup do i think he should no do i think he will mm-hmm. i i think i could see him going over as the squad batter but i don't think he should play and i don't think he will play i just don't think his game is as strong as it needs to be now and i think they just have so many other options available to them Perhaps because they don't have Ross Taylor, and we don't know what Kane's elbow slash now knee um, is going to be like. Um, there is a, a call for having that one senior uh, white ball player there, so I could see him in that role. I don't think I see him as a front line eleven player though um, anymore. He's had a fantastic career. He's a very interesting cricketer. I've talked about this a lot before. It doesn't always make sense to me, but he's, I, he has been a fantastic player for them, and you know, I think he's going to go down as one of the highest one-day run scorers of all time and obviously, uh, you know, one of the highest T20 uh, international run scorers of all time. And I think he deserves all that. I just think this is one World Cup too far for him. I didn't think he should have played in the last World Cup either. Um, So, and that was the T21, obviously. Um, I just think it's he's just not quite the player that he used to be. But as a squad member, I can see why they would still be thinking, you know, there's a reason to have him there. Sports Breakdown says... Uh, can Kusil Pereira come back in ODI team after yesterday's knock of 50? Um, uh, we badly need him back for ODI cricket. Uh, perhaps Kusil Mendes can open up with Nasanka. Uh, yeah, it, it's an interesting one. We will eventually, I'm sure me and Cheyenne will do this. But it's something that I really want to do, which is looking at if you could trade international players where where you would go. And one of the players I thought of instantly was him. There's a real... There's, there's obviously a reason why it hasn't quite worked for him in Sri Lanka. And He's played one of the best test innings of all time. It's a ridiculous situation to be in. But something hasn't worked for him there. And whether he just needs a fresh start, whether he needs to move. I obviously, remember, this is a completely different kind of player and everything else. But you do see players like and Michael Klinger, with perfect example. Michael Klinger, Michael Klinger played for Victoria. I don't know when he was about 12 when he started. Never made runs, never made any runs. Never made any runs. Really struggled. And he just looked, no matter what his age was, he played like a 16-year-old. It felt like he could never hit the ball off the square. And, of course, he went to South Australia, slightly different kind of ground, slightly different kind of Sometimes making runs everywhere and then becomes, you know, this sort of, uh, what would you say, like a sheet anchor type player in one-day cricket and a very good red ball cricketer as well. And you do look at some of these international cricketers and you think, is it just the wrong setup? Is there too many of their kind of player there? Is there... You know, not, not the right kind of coaching structure. They, have they been done over at a young age by the selectors, whatever that may be. And and because international cricket just or international sport just doesn't work that way, right? And so it's a really, really interesting um thing to think of how he could go. Look, I, I I'm gonna find it hard to ever not believe in him. And Kyle Mays is the same at a certain point, just because once you play one of the best test innings of all time, how do you go back from that and say that this person's just an average player? It and and it's easy to someone like me to sit back on the stats and say, you sometimes a player's not in the right situation. And I just wonder if that's his case. And unfortunately for Sri Lanka, there's nothing you can do. You can't treat. I'm not sure if that answered your question at all, but I had fun. Um, let's do one last break here on the Uncovered podcast. And I will... press the wrong button. Obviously. Yeah, let's do one last break and then we'll come down and I'll just- other questions that we can get to and if there's nothing else then there we'll uh hit the hey rohit says are you wearing an oakland a's hat i am i didn't bring my normal um sorry cap with me it's like it stays on my desk uh so uh i always remember to have it when i want to film uh, yeah uh, oakland a's uh, so i own oakland a's and detroit tiger stuff because it's the only major league teams i saw play i saw the play in a playoff game years ago with the tigers i think the tigers had the australian pitcher whose name i always forget who was basically unhittable at that stage and uh, they won that game easily but i went to the coliseum you know i'm not a massive baseball fan by any stretch of the imagination but um i think through being a movie fan and probably you know a um a you know fan of sports writing as well I, you know i followed i've got a lot of friends who obviously uh, who work in baseball as well you know i've been on some of their podcasts and stuff and ch- chat to them at times and um but yeah I, I suppose the a's are my team if the tigers are not my team but i you know i don't really follow it that, that closely at all um i usually look for trends within baseball um i follow some of the more analytic types just, just to see what they're with um, from that perspective because it might help in cricket Shahid said, do you think Ireland will do, how do you think Ireland will do in the test against Bangladesh? Well, having a look at the white ball cricket, you know, will any money on them. Look, I think Ireland bowl um, spin particularly well, and I don't think they're bad against spin particularly well. Not a great place to go to then, Bangladesh, is it? Um, so I said that for the white ball cricket, and that held up pretty well. I'm going to go again with the red ball cricket. I just think it's great that they're playing a test match there, though, and uh, that, you know, they're getting another chance to play a test match. Andy Balbouni has been, what, the captain-elect for quite some time now. Uh, You know, so as someone who knows him and, you know, roots him a little bit, it's great to see him have a chance um, at captaining Ireland in a test match against Bangladesh. And I hope they do well. hope they give Bangladesh a a fair fight. But uh, I just don't see it happening at the moment. Matthew says if England lose the ashes badly could that be the end of baseball? um or what would it take to move away from it or will England now basketball forever so here's the thing about I've I, 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 you know I've been thinking about this quite a lot from a theoretical point of view the majority of England's best white ball batters are over 30. I won't go into my whole pro 40 thing I probably need to do a pro 40 video actually I don't think I've done the pro 40 video I wrote it. Article for it for the cricketer, but it's a very fascinating subject. You don't see many England cricketers under the age of thirty who have those same um, skills of just knocking the ball everywhere at a high average and a high strike rate. So you know the best players are Besto and Roy, uh, was Morgan, Root, Milan, Butler, even someone like Moen. These are all guys who played pro forty cricket, been around for a long time. The guy who the best England batters under thirty. Livingston's, what, almost 30? Phil Saltz, I don't know Phil Saltz's age. He's a potential. And obviously you've got a Harry Brook. What you don't see, though, is an absolute plethora of guys who can come through and smash all the bowling in the world around the way that we saw with that previous generation. At the moment, things might change. That's, that baseball batting style, anyway, doesn't need that, right? It does need enough of those days to be able to come through and be able to do that. This could be something that happens, And, you know, we don't have to worry about it going ahead. But right at the moment, I, I think that's an interesting one. Then we go over to your Ashes point. If they lose the Ashes, will they stop this ball? No, I don't think so. I think if they're traditional English wickets with traditional Dukes balls, it'd be really interesting to see how basketball goes. But I don't think, with all their success so far, if they just lost the Ashes against a team that should also do very well in those conditions, I don't think they need to completely revitalize it i do think if that's the ashes and lost i don't know one of the next two series after that that's the point where they go maybe we just got a little bit lucky or maybe teams have worked it out i've got a video coming up about how i think teams have already started to evolve to play against england in this way and if that is the case um like i think it is then that's a bigger challenge than just one individual team and if teams start to work it out more and more I will be interested going ahead in how in how that plays out. But as it currently stands, if they lose the Ashes, even if they lost them 5-0 at home, which is unlikely, I just don't see that as a reason enough for them to get rid of it because they've won so many tests, you know, on the bounce outside of that. And then last one today, he says, without being able to click it, is Sports Breakdown says, thoughts of my bowls like Boomer and other unorthodox fast bowlers get injured quite a lot. Is it because the action, or any other reasons, for this to incur? I think you'll see if you bowl over eighty-five miles an hour, even over eighty miles an hour, your body will break down. I don't. I, I think there's. If you talk to the biomechanic, uh, mechanic experts, they would probably say that there is a slightly higher um, ratio of doing this if you have a slightly unorthodox technique. But some of the best bowls with the best techniques ever. Still broke down. The, the truth is that fast bowling is a horrendous thing that no human being should do. Um, I remember you talking about substitutions and everything. Someone said to me once that, you know, I, I, it was someone on our Discord channel, uh, which you can sign up to via Patreon, uh, was saying that, you know, we should allow subs in for injuries. And I said, if you did that, any fast bowler at any stage could prove they were injured because it's very rare that a fast bowler is fully fit and they have no niggles and there isn't something wrong. You know, the heel isn't hurting, their toe isn't bleeding. Um, there isn't swelling on their ankle or their knee or, you know, their hips are feeling great or their back isn't all those things happen to them every time they bowl. If you're bowling fast, it is a really hard thing to do. And I think from that perspective, um unorthodox techniques might have a slightly higher injury rate, but realistically, bowling fast is the thing that has the eye injury rate. Anyway, just huge thanks to everyone for coming on. Uh, remember to bug Barat as much as possible and get him to uh, uh, to uh, finally show up for one of these. But big thanks to everyone uh, for asking questions here and for supporting us so far. We have um, a new sponsor lined up soon, and that is all because of you guys. But if you can like, subscribe, do all those things that everyone um, tells you to do in all the videos, that will certainly help um, from that perspective. And we'd uh, love to uh, continue to do this, make more and more videos. There's a couple of interesting things coming up shortly that I think people will like, but I won't announce them soon. Although one of them might be, just might be, that Barat Sundarason may come back to this podcast no promises of course no promises but you never know uh but thanks to everyone in the chat today and uh i'll be around in a couple of days for wagon wheel this show has an ad-free version by patreon and there are many other extras available there as well there is a link to the show notes The show is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. Barat Sundaresen is my co-host. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great production team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapai and Maida Akam producing podcasts. And Makunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube account.
0: Podcast Network.